We're reading in Spectre's work, The Power of Nothing. Um, I just finished page 36, and now I'm moving on to page 37, and I've decided to call this section right here disdain for the placebo because of this first section right here at the time. Few serious scientists would have entertained such questions, let alone be allowed words like ritual and belief to seep into a conversation about medicine. Now, one of the things that I want to have you begin to look for is the method in which people write and how they go about doing their work. So as we read this section right here about the disdain, I want you to be listening for um, how the writer is able to communicate these ideas. What I see at first already with the way this is, is that the author is posing what we would call a contrast or a contradiction. It's something that you really look for purposefully to see. So he's pointing out a contradiction to how most people at that time would have viewed the idea of what medicine really meant. So he continues the contrast here. Placebos had a bad name, which is not surprising since they have been used primarily to deceive people. In clinical trials, if a drug and a sugar pill produce similar results, the drug has generally been considered worthless. But the definition of medical treatment is changing. And so are attitudes about placebos. This year, Harvard created an institute dedicated wholly to their study, the Program in Placebo Studies and the Therapeutic Encounter. It's based at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and Kepchuk was named its director. So there's a contrast already. He, we already know that he was um, not, uh, what did it say in the beginning, introduction of that. Flip over to page 33 and 34. It's not there. Uh, right here, uh, 35. He was an exiled alumnus of turbulent 60s. So there's a contrast in he was previously dismissed from this prestigious place and now has been assigned to a prestigious post in that same arena. So we're in the middle of page 37, page um, uh, line 55. He has already recruited leading researchers from around the world in disciplines as diverse as neuroanatomy and semiotics. So there's a word gap for me, semiotics. And I can use that word gap right there, neuroanatomy. So we're looking at the anatomy like we do the body, but this is the anatomy of neurons and how they are put together. So if you need to, stop for a little bit and resolve your word gap. The program was formed to explore an idea that even 20 years ago would have seemed preposterous, that placebos given deliberately might be deployed in clinical practice as medicine. I love that little short sentence there. He's using that, and we look at 
the techniques writers use, he's really emphasizing that the placebo, normally disdained, is now a contrast that it is medicine. Kapchuk has no shortage of critics. They acknowledge the power of the mind to influence health, but question the rigor of studies suggesting that placebos could prove as valuable as drugs. Indeed, the idea of dispensing sugar pills is jarring, even to those who, like Kapchuk, are enthusiastic about it. After all, placebos have almost always been defined as exactly what medicine is not. So again, there's your contrast. Here is another place. Remember before where we looked at how they pulled out quotes from Kapchuk's interview? The writer's doing it again. And we have to think about why did, of all the words in the conversation, the, the writer choose these words. I realized long ago that at least some people respond even to the suggestion of treatment, Kapchuk said. We know that. We have for centuries. But unless we figured out how that process worked, and unless we did it with data that other researchers would consider valid, nobody would pay attention to a word we said. So now I see he has been in this place before where no one was paying attention to what he said, and he realizes that they've got to go about this research in a way that people would listen to. The research has been propelled in large measure by the emerging discipline of neuroimaging, which, like a live satellite feed from the inside of the human body, permits scientists to track precisely how a person reacts to a drug or a placebo as soon as he takes it. Here's another technique. He's using a simile to help you imagine, you understand what a satellite does, so you can use that same understanding to see how neuroimaging captures what's happening in the mind as the person takes the product. An injection of saline, for example, that has been described as a drug not only will reduce symptoms of Parkinson's disease, but can help a patient produce more of the dopamine that the disease destroys. Now, this is an example of absolute language. It's flat out saying that saline will stop the symptoms of Parkinson's and that it helps them produce dopamine that the disease destroys. They're saying that as a fact. Results like those have provided scientists with chemical evidence of something they had long suspected. Simply believing in a treatment can be effective as the treatment itself. In several recent studies, placebos have performed as well as drugs that Americans spend millions of dollars on each year. Transforming interesting laboratory findings into medicine is never simple. So now it looks like we've gone into a new section to where they're saying that they, the author has combated this disdain for the placebo with facts. And now we're moving into how do we make this a regular practice? So I'm going to get my sticky note out 
and I'm going to write a little note for myself. Uh, findings into practice slash use. Transforming interesting laboratory findings into medicine is never simple. However, particularly when those findings involve fake pills and sham injections. Some people clearly respond better to placebos than others, though we do not know why. Some illnesses and afflictions are more amenable to suggestion than others, and many of the most intriguing findings are tenuous. I, I wonder which ones are um, more amenable. I'd like to know which ones are more suggestible. Even so, the research research is difficult to dismiss. Through conditioning techniques, for example, our brain can learn different kinds of placebo effects. People first given morphine and then a placebo have one neurochemical response. While people who take ibuprofen followed by a placebo have another. Different doses cause different reactions. And studies have demonstrated that people who suffer from headaches and consume aspirin regularly can associate the shape, the color, and even the taste of the pill with a decrease in pain. Fascinating. The value of treatments like those, which have none of the side effects of drugs, would be immense. But placebos are not pharmaceuticals, and no reputable researcher has suggested that they will soon be for sale at your local pharmacy. That'd be scary. Thinking you were buying Tylenol and not really getting it. Page 39. Kapchik acknowledges that placebos are not magic potions. So I like this. I'm going to make a new sticky note right here. Magic potion. And I like that technique that Kapchuk has used here that he's making a comparison and he's using that to really help us understand what it is. Placebos don't shrink tumors, he said. They don't make blind people see. If you're paralyzed, they won't help you walk. He deplores the grandiose claims of alternative medicine and prefers to rely on data. Ultimately, I'm not a zealot or even a true believer, he said. I am sure that I do not understand the placebo effect. I ask questions, and hopefully valuable questions, and we see where the research lands. Kapchik practiced acupuncture for half his adult life, but he stopped 20 years ago. I think this is really important technique that the writer is using here. He's really showing the changes in the way that Kapchuk, even though he's researching this effect, that he remains skeptical. He's not just accepting these things wholeheartedly. As such, this technique brings more credibility to what's happening with the study itself. So he stopped 20 years ago. Despite the popularity of acupuncture, clinical studies continually fail 
to demonstrate its effectiveness, a fact that Kapchuk doesn't dispute. I asked him how a person who talks about the primary data and disdains what he calls squishiness of alternative medicine could rely so heavily on a therapy with no proven value. Kapchuk smiled broadly. Because I'm a damn good healer, he said. That's the difficult truth. If you needed help and you came to me, you would get better. Thousands of people have. Because in the end, it isn't really about needles. It's about the man. That's interesting. I don't think he has any data about that other than his own experiences. Now, on page 40, kind of in the middle, you see these three asterisks. This is a technique that writers use to show you that they are changing topics. So now it looks like we're moving into a historical account of placebos themselves. And so I'm going to write my sticky and say history. And what we can note is how the writer does this. Those graphic features of the text really helps us figure out how the writer is organizing the details. Let's dive into the history. For most of human history, placebos were a fundamental tool in any physician's armamentarium. That's a cool word, like armament, um, like bullets, sometimes the only tool. When there was nothing else to offer, placebos were a salve. The word itself comes from the Latin for I will please. In medieval times, hired mourners participating in Vespers for the Dead often chanted the ninth line of Psalm 116. I shall please the dead in the land of the living. Because the mourners were hired, their emotions were considered insincere. People called them placebos. The word, oh, so now we have the origin, the historical origin of how that word came about. That's an interesting technique. So now he's going to connect that meaning to how placebos are used now. The word has always carried mixed connotations. Thomas Jefferson wrote approvingly of what he called pious fraud. If pious is a word gap for you, you might want to stop and think about that because that meaning of the word paired with fraud is really an important contrast in itself. And noted that one of the most successful physicians I have ever known has assured me that he used more bread pills, drops of colored water, and powders of hickory ashes than all other medicines put together. But as increasingly specific knowledge about human anatomy emerged, people began to demand scientific answers to medical questions. Knowledge of displaced faith and the human health improved rapidly. Antibiotics are real. Placebos are not. There's another contrast. The first publicly acknowledged placebo-controlled trial, and still among the most remarkable, took place at the request of King Louis the Sixteenth in 1784 under the direction of Benjamin Franklin, the then American ambassador to France. The German physician Franz Anton Mesmer 
had become famous in Vienna for a new treatment called animal magnetism. And he claimed to have discovered a healing fluid that could cure many ailments. Mesmer became highly sought after in Paris, where he would routinely mesmerize his followers, one of whom was Marie Antoinette. The king wasn't buying it, however, and he asked the commission of the French Academy of Sciences to look into the claims. The members included Franklin, the chemist Antoine Lavoisier, and Joseph Guillotine, hmm, who invented the device that would eventually separate the king's head from his body. Oh, that's so interesting. The commission replicated some of Mesmer's sessions and in one case asked a young boy to hug magnetized trees that were presumed to contain the healing powers invoked by Mesmer. He did as directed and responded as expected. He shook, convulsed, and swooned. The trees, though, were not magnetic, and Mesmer was denounced as a fraud. Placebos and lies were intertwined in the public mind. It was another 150 years, so we're still talking about the history. I want to pause here and talk a little bit about something. The writer has putting all of these interesting things here about Mesmer, mesmerizing, animal magnetism, Marie Antoinette, um, the guillotine. These are all really interesting facts. Um, it's tempting sometimes to get focused on the things that are really interesting in the text and lose sight of really why they're being used. This is a part of the history that is connected to other things. But we have to remember at the end that Mesmer and his mesmerizing practices were now uh, really viewed as lies and the distrust that comes with that. It was another 150 years before scientists began to focus on the role that emotions can play in healing. During the Second World War, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Beecher, who went on to become the first chairman of the anesthesia department at Massachusetts General Hospital, attempted to assess the degree which the severity of a soldier's injuries compared to the amount of pain he felt. In Europe, Beecher met with more than 200 soldiers, gravely wounded but still coherent enough to talk. He asked each man if he wanted morphine. Seventy-five percent declined. Beecher was astounded. He knew from his experience before the war that civilians with similar injuries would have begged for morphine. And he had seen healthy soldiers complain loudly about the pain associated with minor inconveniences, like receiving vaccinations. He concluded that the difference had to do with the expectations. A soldier who survived a terrible attack often had a positive outlook simply because he was still alive. Beecher made a simple but powerful observation. Our expectations have a profound impact on how we heal. It's important at this time to stop and think about this technique. He's giving a very drastic and dramatic example 
that's a method that writers can use to help move our thinking toward the line of reasoning about how we move from not respecting a placebo to understanding how they might be acceptable. And we often admire soldiers. And now we can see that those expectations, we can understand that that might change how we feel about something. And now look at the next word he uses. We've been talking about soldiers and now armed with this information as if this is now a way to battle the perceptions of placebos and the attitudes. Armed with this information and with his conviction that the placebo effect could be harnessed to help relieve suffering, Beecher returned to the United States and continued his research. So he's going to try to figure out how he can use this impact to help people. In 1955, he published the article called The Powerful Placebo. So now we've changed the connotation. It's a powerful placebo. Before it was a lie. Now we're changing the diction to a more connota uh, positive connotation. In which he wrote that, quote, placebos have a high degree of therapeutic effectiveness in treating subjective responses. He's really clearly defining what this is, and we have those quoted words directly from this authoritative source to show how he began to pose it that began to change how people thought about placebos. So that's a method that you can use. The paper has been cited more than a thousand times by other scientists. There's your startling statistics and numbers. If it is cited that many times, it must have gained some traction. And how that many times being restated could be a part of how people's attitudes started changing. The paper has been cited more than a thousand times by other scientists and Beecher's conclusion that the placebo effect plays a critical role in almost any medical intervention influenced much of what has followed in clinical research. His basic supposition was correct. Emotions and expectations can affect our perception of pain. Before Butcher's work, new drugs were tested in a haphazard manner. Since then, they have always been compared with the placebo or with another drug. But Beecher's methodology was deeply flawed. There's another contrast. We're getting some good impact and it changes the way we do research. And unfortunately, there was still a problem with it. Although he reported that placebos were effective in more than a third of the time, he shrugged off a phenomenon known as regression to the mean. Okay, that is a word gap probably that we have to think about, but I bet that the author is going to explain it. And he does. Over time, regression, that means things get less effective. To the mean, that means the average. Over time, the condition of most patients improves with or without treatment. That's 
true. That's an absolute statement. It's a claim that we can compare to our own experiences. Most of the time, you're going to get better. A person who enrolls in a clinical study when he's feeling particularly bad is likely to improve solely as a course of the natural course of the as a result of the natural course of the illness, not because he was given a placebo. And people often enroll in such studies when they are the sickest. A patient who knows he is in the study also may expect a better therapeutic result than one who doesn't. If you believe that doctors are particularly attentive, you can get better more rapidly, even if they aren't. This is known as the Hawthorne effect. There is also a nocebo effect. Expecting a placebo to do harm or cause pain makes people sicker, not better. When subjects in one notable study were told that headaches are a side effect of lumbar puncture, the number of headaches they reported after the study was finished increased sharply. So the power of suggestion is true in all kinds of ways. For years, researchers could do little but guess about the complex biology of the placebo response. A meaningful picture began to emerge only in the 1970s with the discovery of endorphins, substances secreted in the brain that are chemically similar to opiates like morphine and heroin. The discovery led to the novel idea that, in effect, the brain produces its own pharmacy. In 1978, three scientists from the University of California at San Francisco, John Levine, Newton Gordon, and Howard Fields, decided to investigate whether endorphins might explain why patients who received placebos often reported a significant reduction in pain. People recovering from dental surgery were told that they were about to receive a dose of morphine, saline, or a drug that might increase their pain. By then, researchers had learned not only about the nocebo effect, but that the suggestion of relief will often trigger the production of endorphins. So they were not surprised that patients receiving saline reported reduced pain. What came next, however, fundamentally reshaped the field. So that's like a dramatic statement. Dun, dun, dun. That's a technique that the writer is using, is to pre, mm, preview what he's about to say in a dramatic way. The research dismissed the subjects who received morphine and then divided the remaining participants into those who responded to the placebo and those who didn't. They introduced naloxine into patients' IV drips. Naloxetine was developed to counteract overdoses of heroin and morphine. It works essentially by latching onto and thus locking up key opioid receptors in the nervous system. The endorphins that we secrete attach themselves to the same receptors in the same way. So naloxone blocks them too. The researchers theorize that 
if endorphins had caused the placebo effect, naloxetine would negate their impact. And it did. The naloxone caused those who responded positively to the placebos to experience a sharp increase in pain. The drug had no effect on the people who did not respond to the placebo. The study was the first to provide solid evidence that the chemistry behind the placebo effect could be understood and altered. Look at this quote here. It's a long, and it sums up the sec section very well. And that is a method that you can use as a writer. When you find something that someone has said that's so powerful, it can often form the conclusion of a particular segment or section of your argument. It was one of those studies that made the scales fall from your eyes. And he's referencing a biblical illusion here that you might want to look up. Capchuk told me, I had just started to think about the placebo effect scientifically and historically. And here comes this paper that says that uh, here comes this paper that says that even if it's all in your head, there's a still a biological mechanism driving those reactions. It was very exciting. I want you to pause for just a moment on page 46. You notice that we have those asterisks again and scan over the next few pages, you've got another one that appears on 51. Let's decide what this might be about. They've just, and one of the things we do when we read is we stop and summarize before we move on to really make sure we're keeping track of what the writer is saying. And we began with Kapchuk and acupuncture and his beliefs that placebos were doing a good thing and then the history about placebos and how things started to change when we had scientific proof that the endorphins in your brain are the cause of the placebo effect now let's look and see what happens next in this part right here Kapchuk assumed that the results would add legitimacy to the field. He was wrong. There's your um, technique again. This writer has repeatedly given us these short little dramatic sentences that uh, contrast the idea that was previously held. Things are better than they were, he said. But even now, you know, people at Harvard talk about placebos the way popes used to talk about medicine. They declared that Jews were not allowed to treat Christians, not because they were not good doctors, but because it would have been ethically wrong. These are ethical judgments masquerading as science. Because from the beginning, I kept having this nagging thought, what is so bad about getting better from a placebo? So now we have another one of those hypothetical questions that we had from the very beginning of the whole article. I return back to that hypothetical. Could studying the placebo effect change the way we think about medicine? Well, it is. And now we have another one. What's so bad about a placebo? That kind of thinking, still hard for most doctors to accept was heretical 
1990 when Kapchuk arrived at Harvard. People kept saying, oh, this is just the placebo effect. You would hear that every day, Kapchuk said. He had spent years studying Chinese medicine and medical history, and this made no sense to him. I thought, Ted, step back a minute. This wasn't just something that was a negative. It was something that needed to be understood. Slowly, over the past decade, researchers have begun to tease out the strands of the placebo response. The findings, while difficult to translate into medicine, have been compelling. In most cases, the larger the pill, the stronger the placebo effect. Two pills are better than one, and brand name pills trump generics. Capsules are generally more effective than pills, and injections produce a more pronounced effect than either. There is even evidence to suggest that the color of medicine influences the way one responds to it. Colored pills are more likely to relieve pain than white pills. Blue pills help people sleep better than red pills. And green capsules are the best bet when it comes to anxiety medicine. I'm wondering about something here. The quotation begins on line 340, but it don't see where it ends. That might be a typo. Conditioning and expectations matter, and so does learned behavior. Well, this is still histories, um, but it's it's diving deeper into the details behind. I'm going to get a sticky note. So on page 46, I'm going to write details. Uh, history continues. Details behind why. Conditioning expectations matter, and so does learned behavior. In the 80s, Levine and Gordon divided a group of post-operative patients into three sections. Those in the first section received morphine secretly. Those in the second were told they would receive morphine and did. And those in the third were given a placebo that was described as a powerful pain reliever. The results were startling. Patients who were told that they would receive a painkiller, whether they actually received it or not, had the same experience in the trial as those who secretly received between six and eight milligrams of morphine, a significant amount. The covert dose had to be increased to 12 milligrams to surpass the effect of the placebo. Over the past two decades, the Italian neuroscientist Fabrizio Benedic Benedetti, who studied with Gordon and Levine, and Luana Coloca, a colleague of Bernadetti's, who is now based in the United States at the National Institutes of Health, have found, for example, that diazepam, more commonly known as Valium, 
has no discernible effect on anxiety unless a person knows he's taking it. And increase that's startling. <clears throat> and increasingly, studies like those have been carried out with the help of imaging techniques such as PET scans and functional MRIs that can track brain changes as they happen. These advances in brain imaging along with an increased understanding of neurochemicals have transformed a vague and mysterious notion into a tangible effect that scientists consider worthy of investigation. What's exciting here is that if we are to talk about using placebos in a clinical setting, they would have to have a measurable effect and a biology we understand, Wayne Jonas told me. Jonas is an interesting hybrid in a world often sharply divided between conventional and alternative therapies. In the early 90s, he served as the director of the Medical Research Fellowship Program at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research in Washington, D.C. He went on to run the Office of Alternative Medicine at the National Institutes of Health. From 1995 to 1999, if you'll notice, those are completely different kinds of organizations. One is a medical research fellowship, and the Walter Reed is like, that's like for our United States government in the Army, where they do the research. But now there's another one where it's the alternative medicine. They don't usually <laughs> talk to each other. The morphine studies bring us a long way, he said. Oh, I skipped uh, a line. Today, Jonas is the president of the Samuel Lee Institute, a Washington research group devoted to shifting the focus of healthcare from treatment to prevention. The morphine studies bring us a long way, he said. So did a recent investigation by Kapchuk in which participants suffering from irritable bowel syndrome were not deceived about their treatment. In fact, they were told in great detail about the placebos they received and that they were often as effective as real medicine. The pills brought them relief. For many in the field, results like those achieved in the morphine and IBS studies, while preliminary and in need of confirmation, hint at something far more significant than the effect of placebo or problems with the particular drug. They suggest that the magic bullet approach to healthcare, simple, effective solutions to single problems like strep infection or polio, can no longer remain our principal approach to treating disease. There has always been a distinction between disease and illness. Disease is a biological condition that we have historically treated with drugs, surgery, and other technological solutions. Illness, on the other hand, defines the context of a medical encounter, including the relationship between doctor and patient. Like Kapchuk, Jonas believes that placebo research demonstrates that it is essential to consider both the science and the art of medicine. 
to think about diseases as illnesses and not to rely short, solely on short-term high-tech solutions. This reminds me of the earlier part where Kapchik said it was because he was a good physician. Maybe he was referencing the art of how he helped people get better. Scientists hope that even if it proves impossible to replace drugs with placebos, research into the way they affect us will accomplish nothing less than the transformation of American medicine. There are no magic bullets for most of the problems that ALS today, Jonas said. Diabetes, immune system disorders, chronic pain, cancer. Our illnesses are complex and we need to approach them in more comprehensive ways. We try to identify drugs that will eliminate disease, yet the way we go about delivering these agents, the interaction between doctor and patient, for example, often has a bigger impact than the agent we focus on, more than the drug and more than the surgery. And that has been collectively called the, belief, the placebo effect. And thinking that I might even add to details behind that we put on page 46, that this really culminates in the relationship and art of medicine. <laughs>